0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 16 again this morning. We'll be looking at verses uh, 31 through 34, and we'll be looking at uh, what's taking place in the baptism of the jailer, the Philippian jailer, when it speaks of uh, the baptism of his whole household. So let me, uh, you remember what's just happened Uh, Paul and Silas have been beaten severely, beaten with rods, and now they've been thrown into an inner prison, and their feet have been put into these these stocks that have been uh, holding them securely, tremendous pain, tremendous suffering. And about midnight, uh, while they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, the prisoners were listening to them, but God sent a mighty earthquake. And that earthquake was so tremendous that it shook the foundations of the prison house. All the doors of the jail cells were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. And the jailer awoke out of his sleep Saw that the doors were opened, assumed that all the prisoners had escaped, and was about to commit suicide. When out of the darkness, Paul and Silas spoke, with a, Paul with a loud voice said, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer calls for lights, he rushes in. Trembling, he falls down before Paul and Silas, and then he asks him the most important question of the world that you could ever ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in response, they give the most important answer in all the world. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. So I pick it up here now and uh, we'll be reading again verses 31 through 34. And as I read this, uh, please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Again, verse 31. They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with this whole household. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, several of you asked me, uh, the last week or so, how I would take this view of, of household baptism. And uh, it's an issue that I thought, well, okay, I'll deal with it. And... Uh, so let me kind of lay out some terms, we'll walk through it, and I'll at least explain to you how I understand uh, this passage and kind of the position of uh, of our church. Let me uh, begin by throwing out two expressions. One is paedo-baptism. Paedo comes from the Greek word which means child, and in this context, it's usually referring to infants. So the paedo-baptist belief is that you, bl- you baptize believers, but you... If someone comes a becomes a Christian later in life, but if believers have children, you baptize their infants. So the position of paedo baptism. The other key word I want to uh, remind you of is credo baptism, which uh, credo comes from the Latin word "I believe." We get the word creed from that, what we believe or what we confess. Credo-baptism is that baptism should be only for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. So those are the two positions. Uh, many within the Reformed camp hold the Pato baptist position. Probably the majority do. And then the Reformed Baptist, which our church leadership is in, is, uh, in tune with, would be on the credo-baptism uh, side of this particular issue. Uh, As I begin to talk about this, um, I want to uh, uh, say at the outset that I've learned most of my theology from my Presbyterian brethren. And I thank God for them. Calvin, Luther, Burkhoff, Hodge, Shedd, Murray, and contemporaries like R.C. Sproul. These are men of God who hold to the Pado-Baptist position that I have loved and benefited from their writings uh, immeasurably. Uh, and there are many uh, today who espouse this view who are great brethren within the body of Christ. So our position, even though the, the leaders of our church would differ with that, we don't view with this as an issue of fellowship or even membership within our church because this is an internal difference of opinion on the issue of baptism. We have our strong convictions, but we realize that many godly believers hold to the paedobaptist baptist position. But uh, in saying that, I think it's important for, uh, for me to lay out some of the convictions of the leaders of our church, and that we don't practice paedo-baptism or infant baptism. We practice believer baptism by uh, conviction even though we love our brethren who, who differ, and we recognize that we do disagree on many of these kinds of issues. So, what you're going to hear me say today, if you hold to the Paedo-Baptist view, I just encourage you to be a good Berean believer, and we encourage everyone to study the Scriptures, and you can make up your own mind on these, on these issues. But one of the arguments that is used for the uh, view of infant baptism... are the household baptisms, for example, like we have in our passage this morning, particularly verse 33. And the household baptisms are one that uh, they argue supports infant baptism. Because if the entire household was baptized, you would assume that there could be infants there in some of those households and so the infants must have been baptized as well if the whole household was baptized. And so that's part of the uh, the, uh, the logic as I, as I understand it. The reason would be, again, that if the apostles baptized entire households, surely there's infants included. And the infants would be members of the covenant by virtue of physical birth from a covenant member. So they deserve the sign of the covenant, just like they did in the Old Testament. Now, in my opinion, they they make several assumptions in using household baptisms to support their view that we need to examine carefully. So what I'd like for us to do is to begin by talking initially just by the word baptism. I'm sorry, the word household And then we'll make an application to the word as it's used in these baptism passages. First off, the word household can certainly include infants. Sometimes it does in Scripture. Uh, The qualifications for an elder is that he must be a good manager of his household. That means his children, both older children and younger children. So clearly the the word household can include infants in certain circumstances. But not always. So there are some verses where the word household occurs and it would be very difficult to understand that infants are a part of the household. For example, in Matthew 10:36, a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Well, if the members of his household are enemies, it's hard to understand how a little infant could be someone's enemy because they're not old enough to form convictions. And have that kind of attitude towards someone else. So the word household, if there's infants in there, they are hidden or they're excluded or they're not in view. Because the enemies of a, of a man's enemies will be the members of his household. So that infant would have to grow up and have convictions to, be, to become an enemy. So it's not clear at all that infants can be in view in this. Same with Mark six four. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. So if the household doesn't give a prophet honor, then those in the household must be old enough to understand what the issues are to not give him honor. But it's hard to see how that could apply to a little baby or an infant. Same way with Luke 12, 52, For now on. Five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Again, this implies adults or older kids because an infant is not going to be able to take sides in this kind of a division. So if there are babies in there or infants in there, they're not in view because what's, what's being expressed about them requires a certain level of maturity and age and conviction. So you don't see that. So you just make an observation that certainly households sometimes can include infants and babies and sometimes not include infants and babies. Also, we have to recognize that the Scripture acknowledges at times that entire households can believe. For example, in John chapter 4, verse 53 It says, so the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. Now this deals with the uh, healing of the royal official's son who was dying, and Jesus healed him at a distance, if you will. But notice what it says, that the nobleman or the royal official believed and his whole household. So the entire household believed. Well, that would exclude babies. Babies can't believe. There's no element of a proxy believer in this, in this context. So here we have an example where everyone in the household believes. So it's possible that households in their entirety can come to faith in Jesus Christ. Same thing in Acts chapter 10, verse 2 of Cornelius. He was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household. So what does it mean to fear God? Well, if you fear God, then you're old enough to worship God. And it would seem that to if the whole household feared God, then the whole household must be old enough and mature enough to actually embrace God by faith and understand and respond in humble, obedient faith. It just seemed, not, if there's infants here, it's hard to see where they're included is my point. They feared God with this whole house. So the entire household feared God. The entire household of the nobleman believed in Christ. So these are some opening observations. So with that in view, again, households can include infants. Households cannot include infants. It all depends on the context of the passage. Well, let me see if I can switch back. You know I lost my signal uh so so be it okay well let's uh let's now at this point let's look at Acts sixteen and let's look at uh the passage in front of us. we find uh that The command in verse 31, the gospel is to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then in verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And they took them at that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. So the jailer is baptized and all of his household are baptized as well. So what do we know about the household in this particular passage? Well, we know first off that when uh, the Apostle Paul spoke to him and told him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 32, he went on to speak the word of God to him, the jailer, together with all who were in his house. So he spoke the word of God to all who were in his house. So they were able to hear it and understand it. So whoever's in the household of the Philippian jailer was able to hear the additional explanation of the gospel that Paul gave them in verse 32. We also go on and read in verse 34 that the jailer brought them out of the house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with all his household, with this whole household. So the entire household believed. Now, if there's infants in there, uh, they didn't believe. Infants can't believe. Babies can't believe. So when the Spirit of God uh, moves Luke to write this, he records that the whole household believed. Now, the only, that's the way the NIV, the New American Standard, the King James Version, translates this. If you have the ESV here this morning, it actually translates it a little bit differently. It says the whole household rejoiced with the jailer in his faith. So they take it a little bit different than the other translations. So what do we conclude then about the household? Well, they were old enough to either believe... Or, to rejoice, or probably we should understand they did both, the whole household heard the explanation of the gospel verse thirty two The whole household believed and or rejoiced with the Philippian jailer. Now, all of this suggests that they were older members in the household. It would be hard to again uh, understand that babies or infants would be able to do any of that. They wouldn't be able to hear and understand the explanation, verse 32. They wouldn't be rejoicing with their father, the jailer, in his faith, because they're little babies. They don't understand any of that. And they would not be old enough to believe. And yet all in the household believed, rejoiced, and heard and understand, understood uh, what was being spoken to them. So if this is a verse to support infant baptism, you've got to infer that infants are in there and that they've done all these things. Because that's what we know about the whole household in verse 34. So to me, it uh, doesn't support infant baptism. It actually supports believer baptism based upon what's actually written in here. Now a household could be servants. A household could include anybody that lives in the house. But uh, babies don't seem to be able to participate in the responses here that the household makes uh, in uh, in this particular passage. So, in my opinion, I would actually chalk this up as a support for credo baptism. Well, let's go back up to in chapter sixteen to verse fourteen and fifteen. Let's look at Lydia. This is another example. There's primarily four household baptism passages that we need to examine if we're going to evaluate what they contribute to the issue of infant baptism. Okay, in verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized... She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay, were there infants in this household that were baptized? It says in verse 15, she and her household had been baptized. So we ask the question, okay, is there evidence that there are infants here? Now, all we're told about Lydia is that she's a traveling businesswoman. She, her hometown is Thyatira, so she's traveled from Asia Minor over into Macedonia. There's no indication that she's married. There's no husband indicated. Uh, she could be a divorced woman, single, or she could be a widow. Uh, we just don't know. And what we are told is that she's engaging in business in Philippi. And she's apparently a very prosperous woman. She sells purple fabric. So she had a very uh, expensive business and apparently was very good at it. And that she and her household ended up being baptized. But since there's no indication of having a husband... And the likelihood that as a businesswoman traveling and living in a foreign city, engaging in business daily, that she would have a little infant with her seems less likely to me to infer that since she's by herself, uh, no indication she's married or that her husband is with her. So it seems less likely to me, this is my view of this, that that there would probably be an infant or a baby in there who's in the household. Given the fact that she's traveling in another country, she's engaging in business every day. Also, if you look at verse 15, she seems to be exercising or acting as the head of her household in the way she boldly invites Paul and and his traveling companions to come and stay with her in her house. Notice what she says in verse 15. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It's like her household, she was the head of it. She was making those decisions. Which again, if she was married, seems a little bit odd that she would be in control and in command or authoritative, if you will, in that particular light. So again, there, there doesn't seem to be any clear evidence that there was an infant or a baby in her, in her household. Maybe there was, but it's, you certainly have to infer that in there because it's not in the text itself. So her household would have been her servants, possibly older children that were old enough to travel with her into another foreign country and engage in business. We, we don't know. But the idea of assuming and inferring that there are babies in here, again, I don't see any convincing evidence of that in my humble opinion seems better that she was either single, divorced, or a widow, that she would not have any infants there. Okay, let's look at uh, the third passage. Turn to Acts chapter 18. Most of these are in Acts. One will be in 1 Corinthians. Acts chapter 18. And look at verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So here we have uh, Crispus, who believed in the Lord with all of his household. So his entire household believed. I mean, that's what, what it's stating here. So his entire household was old enough to hear, to understand the Gospel, and believe it, And then later on in verse 8, along with the other Corinthians in Corinth, they heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and were baptized. So they were baptized based upon their faith. And his entire household had come to faith. So again, I don't see any support that there's babies here, infants that are being baptized. The last uh, example is actually in 1 Corinthians. So let's turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we start in verse uh, 16. This is Paul's reference to some of the people that he baptized. 1 Corinthians 1:16 he says now i did not bab- now i did baptize all the household of stephanus beyond that i don't know whether i baptized any other so he's talking he's trying to remember back the ones people he baptized and he said that uh, in reference to this letter he baptized the household of stephanus so can we infer that there were babies in this household as well that would support infant baptism. Well, that's, this is all that Paul says in verse 16, is that he baptized a household. We don't have any additional information. However, at the end of the letter, he does describe the household of Stephanus. So let's turn to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians and look at verse 15. Chapter sixteen, verse fifteen. He says, "Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. That's where Corinth and Athens are, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. So, what do we learn about the household that was baptized? Well." Paul describes them as the first fruits of Achaia. Now, the first fruits means they were the first believers in that area. They were the first converts in that area. So again, there's not any evidence that there would be infants if they, if they were the first fruits, implying they were the first converts. Now, that wouldn't apply to infants. And also, he says that they've devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. So these... The whole household, not only were converts, they were devoting themselves to ministry to the saints. Now again, I think it's very difficult to read in that infants are in this household just based on the way they're described here in verse 15. They're old enough, they have faith, they're committed to Christ, they're devoted for ministry to the saints, which again seems to exclude infants or babies from being able to do that. Are they there? You have to infer it. There's no... The way that he describes a household certainly doesn't suggest it on the surface to me. So again, when I look at this, I see well, how can that describe an, an infant? Can an infant believe? Can an infant be devoted to service of the saints? No, it seems to require a certain age level and maturity and infants can't can't do that. So again, I would say of the four household baptism passages, the evidence in all of those supports that they were believers. There's no clear evidence of any small children or infants or babies being, being baptized. So if they were in the family, they're invisible or they're excluded or they're, they don't participate. Just based on, on the information that we're, we're given about those households. So it seems to me that all of those really, in my opinion, would support believer baptism. Only believers being baptized. Since they all seem to have expressed some kind of faith. So if that's the case, and the case that also there is no command in anywhere in the New Testament to baptize babies, where is the fundamental argument in favor of infant baptism? Well, this is where we get into the issue of covenant theology. And uh, in this particular uh, issue, the Reformed Presbyterians and the Reformed Baptists uh, hold to a differing understanding of covenant theology. And our Presbyterian brethren who practice infant baptism see more continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant And the Reformed Baptists see a larger area of discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Let me see if I can explain it without making you get seasick or dizzy or something like that. For the uh, Paedo-Baptist view, as I understand it, the New Covenant is basically a renewal of the Old Covenant. That there's continuity and the New Covenant is a renewal of the Old Covenant. Now, this is important in their understanding because membership in the old covenant is based on what? Physical descent. The children of covenant members are automatically children. They're in the covenant, so you give them the covenant sign. The baby boy's got circumcision. And they say since the new covenant is just a renewal of that, then the same principle should apply in the new covenant. Only the sign is changed. Not circumcision. That doesn't matter anymore. But it's baptism. But since the babies were in the covenant, they were members of the covenant in the Old Covenant, therefore they deserve to get the sign, that is true in the church. So a covenant member in the New Covenant, when they have a child, that baby is automatically a covenant member, so you give them the sign of baptism. The reason why I think in the Old Testament, the reason why the the babies were considered to be covenant members is because the old covenant was not a covenant that guaranteed their salvation. It was a covenant that laid out a lot of privileges, external blessings, but it was a mixed covenant because it was, it was comprised of curses and blessings. You can read Deuteronomy 27 and Deuteronomy 28 and you'll find a whole, a whole long list of blessings that comes upon those who obey the covenant laws. And a whole long list of curses if you disobey the covenant laws. So it was a covenant that was not designed by God to save every covenant member. In fact, most of the Jews throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites, were idolaters and and they were falling away from the Lord all the time. And He was only saving a remnant within the nation. But it was not designed to save everyone. So in that case, your children could be in the covenant regardless of what their spiritual standing would, would turn out to be. Whether they were lost or saved, they're still members of the covenant because that's the nature of the covenant. And so therefore, you give the covenant sign to all babies because whether they grew up to be a believer or an unbeliever, a worshiper of God or an idolater, they were still in the covenant. If they were an idolater, they would receive the curses of the covenant. If they were a believer, they would receive the blessings of the covenant. But it was a mixed covenant. And you could be either saved or lost, but you're still in the covenant. Uh, You could fall out of it. You could become a covenant breaker, but then you get the curses of the covenant. Um, But that's why you would give the sign to all of them because they're all members whether they're saved or not. The Reformed Baptists see that, we see this a bit differently. We see more discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant we see that the main difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, what makes the New Covenant new is that there is a new standard of membership in the covenant. In the Old Covenant, it's based on physical birth, physical descendancy of a covenant member. But in the New Covenant, the way we see it is it's not based on physical birth, it's based on spiritual birth. That's the difference in the New Covenant. That the new covenant is for the elect only. The chosen of God. The true believers. They're the ones who actually are members of the new covenant. Therefore, they alone deserve the covenant sign of baptism. It's based on faith, not birth. Physical birth. And this is where our brethren, you know, we just have a differing uh, opinion on, on these things. In terms of how we understand the nature of the covenant. Let me give you some, some of my reasonings for holding to uh, the greater discontinuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. First off, when, when, uh, in the Old Testament when they prophesy, when Jeremiah in particular prophesies of the New Covenant and Ezekiel, and then those are repeated in the New Testament, the expression New Covenant in the Greek New Testament uses two different Greek words for new. One of the words is kinos, which means new in quality. So the new covenant is a, is a new covenant that's new in quality. And also the other word is neos, which means new in time. So the new covenant is not only new in quality, it's also new in time, it, it had a beginning. So it's not a renewal of the Old Covenant. It is a new covenant. It began when Christ inaugurated it on the cross of Jesus Christ. Its promises have a shadow back in the Old Covenant. That's why people could still be saved. But the covenant was not actually ratified until the cross of Christ. So that had a new, new and time beginning. And I think that supports uh, the discontinuity between the two. Another thing is that the New Covenant seems to be, in my understanding, uh, reserved and restricted only, as I said, to the elect or to believers. Now, I've got, uh, if you're nimble with your fingers and you want to try to keep up with this, uh, but Ezekiel 36, for example, verse 26 and 27, Ezekiel prophesies of the New Covenant. This is what he says about it. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I'm I'm going to see if I can... I think I can pull this up again maybe. Could you just tweak that? Yeah. See if it will come back on. Okay, we'll see how long this lasts. Uh, I think it's help. I'm going to be running through so many verses. I think it's going to be... Okay. The Ezekiel 36 is one of the promises of the new covenant. And notice what he says. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'll take out the heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you... I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. This new covenant is going to bring about a totally redeemed people of God. There's not going to be any lost people in here. It's going to be totally redeemed. We're going to have a new heart and a new spirit. He's going to take out the old heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He's going to put His Holy Spirit within us so, and He will cause us to walk in His statutes and observe His ordinances. So it's, the New Covenant is different than the Old Covenant. It's not a mixed covenant like you have in the Old Testament. But it is restricted to the redeemed, those who have been regenerated. So it's based on the new birth, not the physical birth of the Old Covenant. It's a new membership criteria, if you will. That's the way we understand it. In Jeremiah 31, look at this. Behold days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with them, with the house of uh, which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So it's not like the Mosaic covenant. Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant are linked together. It's not like that. It's different from that. Now notice here's one of the key differences. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them declares the Lord. You could break the old covenant. You can't break the new covenant. But you could break the old covenant as a covenant member. Um, But this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again every man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. They will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and their sin I will remember no more. These are redeemed people. God promises that when He establishes a new covenant with His people, He will transform them. He will write His law upon their hearts. They won't be able to break it like they did in the old covenant. The new covenant is different. I'll write my law on your heart, and I will be your God, and you'll be my people, and You won't have to tell people to know the Lord because in the New Covenant, everybody knows the Lord. All of them know the Lord from the least to the greatest. So you don't have this unbelieving element within the New Covenant. They all know the Lord. And their sins are forgiven, which imply they've come to faith, right? They're believers. I'll remember their sin no more. I'll forgive their iniquity. So the New Covenant is going to establish a believing, regenerate, People of God. So the new covenant sign of baptism should be given only to those who have the characteristics of the covenant. So this is kind of how we understand this. And again, they will all know me. You don't have unbelievers. You can have tares in the church. You can have tares among the wheat, but they're not a part of the covenant. Even if they're members of a church and they've been baptized, they're not a part of the covenant if they haven't been born again and have the law written on their heart and truly know the Lord. That's descriptive of membership in the new covenant. Jeremiah also talks about the New Covenant when he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. In the New Covenant, you will not have a covenant breaker. You can have a covenant breaker in the Old Covenant. New Covenant is different. It's a covenant of salvation. It's a covenant of grace. And He will put the fear of God Almighty within our hearts. So that we will not turn away from Him. We will not. So you can't have a covenant breaker in the new covenant. Why? Because Christ has met all of the covenant conditions. He's met all the requirements of the covenant for us. So you cannot have a covenant breaker that comes under the curses of God in the new covenant. So that's why we think baptism, the sign of the new covenant, should only be given to believers who possess that grace by, by the uh, grace of God. Also, it's interesting, we see that the uh, New Covenant children are spiritual. See, in and, and the Old Covenant, you can be a covenant child by being physically born of a covenant member. Immediately when they're born, they're a covenant child based on a, a physical connection with a covenant member. But in the New Covenant, that principle, in my view, is not valid any longer. Even in Isaiah 53, one of the greatest passages prophesying the coming of the Messiah and his atoning death for his people, says in verse 10, if he, referring to this suffering servant in Isaiah 53, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. Now let me ask something. Did Jesus have any physical offspring? He didn't have any physical offspring. So what kind of offspring is He going to see? Spiritual offspring. His brothers and sisters. And you know, He called His disciples my children throughout the Gospels. Those are His offspring. So that to be a child of the covenant in the New Covenant is not based on physical descendancy. Christ had no physical children. But it's spiritual offspring. And you see that even in the prophecies of of the Old Testament. I kind of think that the Luke 8 passage also supports that. Here's Jesus teaching and His mother and brothers come up to Him and they're wanting to talk with Him. And it was reported to him in Luke 8.20, your mother, your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. And Jesus says something amazing which tells me he is redefining his covenant family. He says, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the Word of God and do it. They say, hey, your mother and brothers are out here. They want to talk to you. Jesus ignores them and redefines his covenant family. No. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the Word of God and do it. They've been born again. They have faith. So I think Christ Himself even redefines the nature of the New Covenant family. Membership is not based on physical descent anymore as in the Old Covenant, but based on spiritual birth, not physical birth. That's why I think the Apostle Paul could say, in Galatians 7, who are the sons of Abraham now? Is it those physically descended from Abraham? Nope. He says it's those who have faith. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. See, so that now a Gentile who doesn't have any biological, physical connection with Abraham, we're not from a Jewish stock, nevertheless, I'm a child of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm a son of Abraham purely by faith. It's a spiritual childhood. It's a spiritual qualification. Not based on physical descent, but the new birth, the spiritual birth from above. And the reason for that in Galatians 3.16 is that when God made that promise to Abraham, He promised to Abraham and to his seed and he does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. So Christ is the fulfillment of all of Abraham's covenant blessings. They're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the seed. He is the heir of the Abrahamic covenant. And every believer, Jew or Gentile, everyone who puts their faith in Christ is now in Christ. So we are in the air. We are in the seed. We inherit all the promises of Abraham. All of his covenant blessings will come to us because we are now his children. Not based on physical birth, but based on spiritual birth and faith in the Messiah. So in Galatians 3.29, Paul could say if you belong to Christ, if you're in Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. You're his children. Heirs according to promise. You're going to inherit it all. It's so all you're purely based upon faith that comes from the new birth. Same thing in Romans nine, six. Paul is being uh, dealing with the objection. Wait a second, Paul. You know, you say the Messiah's come, you say he's offered salvation, the Jewish Messiah is here. Why is it that most Jews are still lost? Why haven't they been redeemed? Why haven't they been saved? And Paul's answer is, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. I have to kind of think about that. They're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, you could be physically descended from Israel and not be a true Israelite. He says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. You can be a descendant of Abraham. Doesn't mean you're a a true child of Abraham, though. But through Isaac, your descendant will be named. That is, and then look at verse 8. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. That old covenant principle is no longer valid in the new covenant. It's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Who are the children of promise? Well, Isaac is the first one. God promised that Abraham, even though your body's dead, Sarah's body's dead, I'm going to give you a baby boy. So Isaac's birth was a miracle of God's sovereign power. And he becomes the type for all of the new covenant sons of Abraham who miraculously go through this divine birth, this new birth that God Himself brings about, which causes us to become believers in Christ. We are the children of promise. It's those who experience, like Isaac, that miraculous, supernatural birth from God. Not physical birth here, but spiritual birth. And then later on, he says that even Gentiles are grafted into this marvelous blessing. We he said, well, what about other verses? And uh, like 1 Corinthians 7.14, doesn't this say that children are holy so they should be Baptized. So 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And the argument is, is that since, well, since a believer's child is holy, that must mean they are in the covenant, so they should receive the covenant sign of baptism because they are Holy. But when you read the context, Paul's issue that he's dealing with is that some of the believers in the church are married to unbelievers and they're concerned about that. You know, I've come to faith but my unbelieving spouse has not. Is our marriage even legitimate? Is it immoral? And what about my children? Are my children illegitimate? Because I'm married to an... um... So they had all these practical moral issue questions and Paul begins to try to clear that up for them. And he says, no, your unbelieving husband is sanctified. Literally, it means to make holy through his wife, his believing wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. And what's important to recognize is that the word holy for the children is the same word as the word sanctified for the unbelieving spouse. Sanctified is the verbal form of hagias And holy is the adjective. It's the same root word. So the question to me is this. If you're going to use this as an argument for infant baptism, that since the children are holy, therefore they should be baptized, the unbelieving spouse is also holy. So should they be baptized too? If you're going to be consistent and obviously, no one would agree to that. But it just shows that what we're dealing with in this passage is not dealing with a baptism issue. It's not dealing with a salvation issue. It's just dealing with the fact that, look, if you're married to an unbeliever, your marriage is okay. It's legal. It's lawful. Your children are not illegitimate. They're legal. They're holy in in light of of God's law. In that regard, they're not out of uh, adultery or immorality. No, they're everything is okay. And that's the way I interpret that particular passage. Uh, one other one is just on the uh, children of in Acts two thirty eight, where Peter says. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. So this verse, the way I understand this verse is that that promise is for you and for your children. And what's the promise? Well, in verse 38, the promise is if you repent and be baptized. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. But man, if you repent, you'll receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the promise. And that promise is for everybody. For adults, for children, for those who are far off. That promise is for everybody. But then he qualifies it by saying, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So it's the elect, it's the chosen, it's the ones that receive that irresistible call of the God. They're the ones who eventually will repent and receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I don't see the children here as a as a support for necessarily for infant baptism. The final point I want to make is just to um, on this is that. Uh, baptism in the New Testament is only commanded for disciples. Now, church ordinance should be something that is commanded by Christ. Celebrating the Lord's Supper is commanded by Christ. Baptism is commanded by Christ. You never have a a command to baptize infants. The only commands of baptism are for those who believe. Matter of fact, we see this here, even in Acts 2.38. Repent and let each of you be baptized. It's based on repentance. So repentance is a necessary um, heart attitude which enables and qualifies someone to be baptized. Same thing in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them, who's of the them referred to? Disciples. What's a disciple? A follower of Jesus Christ. So, it only, it only works with someone who is older, that has understood the gospel and, and repented and believed and is now a learner, a follower of Jesus Christ. So, the only command of baptism in the New Testament deals with uh, those who are disciples. So, in conclusion, I think from, from our perspective, Uh, the Reformed community is divided on these issues, obviously. And it would be good to hear how the Pato Baptist brethren would would answer and and understand all these passages that we've gone over as well. So you can weigh it on both sides. But I think one of the great uh, points that I've become convinced of is that the New Covenant is different than the Old Covenant. That the Old Covenant membership was based on physical birth from a covenant member. But that's been changed. That's, the newness of the new covenant is now covenant membership is based on the new birth, not physical birth. And based on that, the sign of baptism should only be given to those who give evidence that they're born again and have a, a real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, can there be tares among the wheat? Yeah. Sometimes we'll baptize tares. Uh, by mistake. And uh, sometimes that will be uh, manifested later on in life. But Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And all who are in His covenant should participate in His full ministry as our mediator. And as our mediator, what did Christ do for us? He died on the cross and bore the wrath of God for our sins. Every covenant member shares in that. He also now prays for us and secures our salvation so that we can't fall away. All covenant members participate in the heavenly high priestly prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be in the covenant means to be you're, you're a part of Christ. You're in Christ. You're saved. You're redeemed. You know the Lord. You've, the law of God has been written on your heart. Your old heart of stone has been taken out. The new heart of flesh has been put in there. And that is our understanding. That all covenant members are genuinely saved. They cannot fall out of the covenant. They cannot break the covenant. But they will persevere to the end. Because that's what Christ promises us. That He who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, in wrapping this up, remember your baptism. Then I think this is one of the advantages of credo-baptism over paedo-baptism is that I think we should remember our baptism. And if you're baptized as a baby, that's, you really can't do that. Uh, even though as an adult or an older child, our memories can fade, but I think it's important that we remember our baptism. And of course, we practice immersion of believers as well. But it's designed to have that powerful reminder because I can remember it. Because I know when I did it. I can remember where I was and all that went through, and that, that's sanctifying to me. Even under the Old Covenant, circumcision was something you could, you were always uh, aware of. But infant baptism most people that have been baptized as a babies have no recollection of it, unless they have you know, home movies or something of it. But I think we're called upon to remember our baptism. To remember that we've been washed from all of our sins by the blood of Christ. And when you're immersed into in water, that picture of cleansing where you, you go down under the water and then you come back out, uh, uh, out of the water. And that water washing is a symbol of what should have taken place already within your soul. That because of your faith and repentance and trust in Christ alone, you have been washed And you've been immersed, and now you're clean in Christ. And we need to remember that. And you can remember when you were immersed in baptism, particularly when Satan comes and tries to convince you you're a sinner, you're unworthy, you don't deserve the Lord. Well, remember your faith in Christ, and you can remember the symbolism in baptism to remind you, Satan, I've been washed. I've been cleansed. And you can try to convince me all that that I'm a hellbound sinner but my conscience is, is 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 founded upon Christ. And then in Romans 6 Paul encourages them to remember that they were baptized into the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And then, when they came up out of the waters, like that resurrection, you come up out of the grave, and now you can walk in newness of life, and you can remember that you reenacted that symbolically in your baptism. And then he concludes by saying, based on your baptism into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, now consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God. So, there's a practical aspect of baptism in our sanctification that I think uh, is more meaningful for credo-baptists than for our pedo-baptist brethren. Okay, well you can stop holding your nose now. I, I told people in my class earlier that if, you, if I ever teach anything that you disagree with, just pray for me, love me, and hold your nose till I get through the end of it. So I'm at the end of it. So you can uh, release your, your nose. Well, these are areas again where the brethren differ. And uh, we understand that, and it doesn't bother us because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we uh, agree on these types of things or not. And so, uh, may the Lord uh, help us to uh, study and to uh, grapple with some of these challenging issues. So, let's close in order of prayer. Our Father, again, we just uh, thank you, Lord, for Scripture and the opportunity to study it. And, uh, Lord, we. We seek a greater illumination and understanding, even in areas where good believers often differ, particularly within the Reformed camp, which is where our heart is. And so give us uh, love for one another. Uh, Give us unity in the Spirit. Give us a a kind heart towards those who may differ with us on any number of issues uh, where we may differ within the body of Christ. But most of all, Lord, we we just want to love You and reaffirm our, our faith in You and our trust in You that You have saved us from our sins. And we rejoice in this Christmas season when You came down from heaven. And we can celebrate the glory of the Incarnation. And so, Lord, may these truths stir our hearts that we might live consecrated lives for You each and every day. For we ask it,